Esther. If you're looking for Esther, about two books before the book of Psalms, as, as you open up to that. In a little booklet called What is Providence, Pastor Derek Thomas says, the doctrine of providence insists that everything that happens does so because God wills it to happen, wills it to happen before it happens, and wills it to happen in the way that it happens. That's our understanding of providence, that God is at work in our circumstances, in our lives, and he is accomplishing his will in all things. That definition can seem unsettling at first, if the first time you encounter that, that idea of a sovereign God and his providence, and then if you consider the alternatives, you realize why this is the, the one that indeed is taught in scripture. There's two common alternatives. One would be that God can see the future that he desires, but decides to limit himself by the free will of man, and so because of man's free will, God cannot ensure the future that he desires. And under that model, uh, God is powerless to bring about the future that he desires, though by his omniscience, he still knows how it all works out in the end. The other option is that God knows each of us so well that he is able to orchestrate circumstances around us in order to sort of move us to do his will, that he, he knows what our desires are, he knows um, how we think, and so he orchestrates the circumstances that we would then freely achieve his purposes. Of course, again, if the goal in that is to uphold human freedom, the reality is that there's still the chance that man will thwart God's plan and do something different. The book of Esther is going to teach us a very robust very strong understanding of the providence of God, but it will do so in an overt way. We won't find direct assertions in the book of Esther like we do in Isaiah 46 when the Lord himself says, I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying, my plan will take place and I will do all my will. That is a comprehensive assertion by God of his providence, that he will do as he wills. We won't find the writer of Esther telling us that God is working out the details of her story according to the counsel of his will, as Ephesians 1.11 says. We won't find descriptions of events in Esther where they, we see the, the writer telling us how this is orchestrated by God, much as we see in Acts 2.23 when it tells us that Jesus was delivered up to crucifixion by the, the, the direct plan and foreknowledge of God, his determined plan and foreknowledge. We won't find any overt statements like those because we won't find the name of God in Esther or references to God in Esther or references to prayer or calls to obedience or allusions to the temple or Jerusalem or sacrifices. In fact, the ways that we'll see God's providence in Esther are not even described to us as miracles or as supernatural interventions. And yet, we will see God's providence. We've called this series of sermons a story of providence, which I'll acknowledge, my choice, kind of a vanilla description in terms of how titles go. But let me try to add a little bit of color to that as to why I thought a story of providence is a good way to describe this. Esther is a story, not a fictional story by any means. It is a story of something that took place historically, but it is a well-written story. It is 
filled with intrigue. It develops characters in it, shows us characters who are, are very interesting, significant people, fascinating storyline, reversals, even a little bit of humor, I think, at points. And so it's a well-written story, but there's something else that you'll notice almost immediately as we begin reading. There's no identified author. We know that there was some human author, we just don't know who that was. Commentators would speculate that it's Mordecai who we'll meet later in the book of Esther. Could be Ezra, could be Nehemiah. We don't know, and scripture has chosen not to make that an important point. Book is written about events that take place in the early part of the fifth century BC. Uh, we know that the, the events here are, are given to us in terms of a time span based on the reign of a king. And so sometime after 473 BC, this record is given of the events that took place prior to that. But I'll say this to you, the lack of an identified human author, I think pushes us back to what we ultimately believe and know about scripture. That 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired or God breathed. It is the word of God. It is given through human authors. And so there's, there's the essence of their personality that certainly you can see the distinctions in Paul's writing and Peter's writing and John's writing. You can, you can sense some of the different contexts that they're writing from, but it is still God's word. Second Peter 1.21 says human authors spoke as they were carried along by the spirit of God. And so the Bible is God's word. And so the lack of of an identified human author, I would suggest just highlights the fact that God has given us this story very clearly. It just emphasizes that this drama of Esther's story is, is one of the invisible hand of God's providence that God himself has given to us to understand. How he accomplishes his purposes through a pagan king and queen, through an evil government official, and through a, a, a Jewish man and woman who at best, their allegiance to Yahweh is unclear. There's just not anything in the text that tells us a great deal about their obedience to Yahweh. And yet we still see God at work in all of this. I'm going to read just the first nine verses to start in Esther chapter 1, just to give us kind of a launching point, and we'll cover chapter 1 this morning. But Esther 1, let's just start in verse 1, says, These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Cush. In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials, staff, the army of Persia and media, the nobles, and the officials from the provinces. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and blue linen hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods and marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. The drinking was according to royal decree. There are no restrictions. The king had ordered every wine stored in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Ahasuerus' palace. 
King Ahasuerus reigns over the Persian Empire starting in 486 BC until he is assassinated in 465. And so the events of this book happen during the course of that reign, starting in the third year of his reign. The Persian Empire was enormous. As verse 1 tells us, it, it stretched from the border of India and Pakistan all the way to Kush, which is modern-day Ethiopia. It is the largest kingdom up till that point in history. It's described here as 127 provinces. Uh, sometimes historians uh, bicker with this number because the Persians didn't use the term province, but really it's a writer's term. Daniel uses a, a, a similar description. Really probably meant to capture the idea of a, of a city and its surrounding region, so much as we would talk about the DMV being this region. That province has the same idea. And the point, really, of the writer saying that is that when you think of a vast empire, here is one that's got 127 of these cities and surrounding regions, the point being wherever you traveled, you were somewhere under the rule of King Ahasuerus. You were somewhere within his kingdom. A century earlier, the Babylonians were the ruling empire of the day. So if we back up one century from King Ahasuerus, we get to the Babylonians who at that point in time, as you'll recall, marched into Jerusalem and were used as God's instrument of punishment on the Jewish people of Judah because of their rebellion. And so they come in and they destroy Jerusalem and they destroy the temple and they take the Jews into captivity. In 539 BC, so roughly halfway between that point and where we are here in Esther, Babylon falls. King Cyrus of Persia conquers Babylon. And one of his early actions is to free people to return to their homelands, in particular a decree that allows Jews now to return from exile and to go back to Jerusalem. And, and our understanding of that comes from Ezra and Nehemiah, and, and we, we immediately get the sense that the potential for return was bittersweet. It was the opportunity to go back to the homeland, but it was also a destroyed homeland. Jerusalem and the temple were in ruins, and so to go back meant great work, as opposed to where you might have been and where you have settled in life at that point. And so Ezra tells us that first Return was a significant number, but a small number of Jews who came back to Jerusalem. After Cyrus, Darius becomes the king of Persia. Darius has a long reign. During that time, Darius um, gives assistance to the Jews as they begin to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, Darius' reign is strong, but his life ultimately ends in the midst of a failed military conquest. Darius has set his sights on one of the remaining regions that has been outside of the Persian grasp, and that's Greece. And, and he is determined to take Greece, and his army falls at Greece and is defeated, and he is making plans for how they are going to go back and attack Greece again when he dies. And so that challenge is left to his son. His son is commonly known, if you start Google searching him, you'll see him by his Greek pronunciation of his name, Xerxes. The Persian name is much more complicated. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. But Ahasuerus ultimately is the Hebrew version of the Persian name of this king who is the son of Darius. That's who we meet in Esther 1. He becomes king at about the age of 32. It's the third year of his reign. He hosts this six-month-long massive feast for his uh, ranking officials. It says, speaks of his army in verse 3. We presume it wasn't the whole army as they would have been stationed at various points, but clearly it's talking about his military leaders, those who are in charge, his military council. 
Some of this is, interestingly enough, is confirmed by Herodotus, who wrote history in the middle of that fifth century. He was a Greek who was watching the Persian Empire, and, and his writing describes this very meeting of the military council that would have happened at about this time. It's assumed, then, that the feast, at least in part, is, is not just a a sort of brag feast or just sort of a I'm the greatest, which it is, but, but really it's got a purpose. It is to build the case for why we need to go back and finish the job, why we need to take the military back in. The Persians had suffered a terrible defeat before and they had been suffered many casualties and were forced to flee. And, and so Ahasuerus has this challenge now of reigniting support for a military assault that is not going to be popular. And so this six-month feast, really the message to his governing officials, to his military leaders, is I will spare no expense. I, I basically own everything. See what I've got here for you. See what I can do. And understand that if I'm leading this, we will be victorious. And so he goes to great lengths to show that his leadership is, is reliable, his kingdom is strong, that he is a good ruler and that Persia will prevail and that this military will be richly rewarded. Because after all, he's got all this stuff. So just follow me is sort of the mentality. The last part, it says, of that after that six months is a week-long banquet. This is at the Winter Palace in Susa. And Hasuerus there says to everyone in attendance, you may drink without restriction. The, 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 the common restriction of being in the presence of royalty would have been you drink when the king drinks. When the king picks up his goblet, then you pick up your goblet. When he puts it down, you should put yours down too. This was open bar to its finest. This was a Hasuerus saying, you can have anything, you can drink what you want, my servants will provide for you. And so you get to day seven, and verse 10 tells us the king was feeling good from the wine. It's the writer's not-so-subtle way of saying, Azuerus had had plenty to drink during that time. And he's feeling good, and it's at this point that he takes his arrogance a step too far. Determined to prove to all of those watching his authority and his power and his capability to lead and his strength, showing off all of his riches, he had one more idea about showing all of these men just how powerful he was. Verse 11, he told his servants to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. There's a great deal of speculation, even amongst Hebrew commentators, about this passage and what exactly Ahasuerus is demanding of Vashti at this point. I would suggest to you there's really no need to speculate beyond what we've got in the text. This is, this is the culmination of the week-long commoners feast, if you will. Remember, it was all those from the greatest to the least. It's not just the advisors and the council anymore. It's everybody in the region of Susa has been gathered at this event. He has spent all of this time seeking to impress people, showing them the, the marvels of his palace, the marble and the precious stone. Have a seat on one of my gold and silver couches and notice the ornate flooring that these couches are on. Drink as you wish, as you please. You may have whatever you want. It's all in my hands. In fact, I have this 
this wife of mine, Queen Vashti, and she is the most beautiful woman. And I am, in fact, going to bring her here. So you can be in awe of her beauty, but really, what's the ultimate purpose here? So you can look at me and say, wow, what a man. He can command anything. He can command even Vashti to be brought and, and shown off. Pause here a moment. There's four themes I want us to think about this morning that really will kind of help us think through the, the book of Esther. And, and the first one is God's providence overrules man's greatness. Greatness, I would almost put in quotes. Everything that we've seen so far is generally been confirmed to us by Herodotus, by the secular writing of a Greek historian who documents much of this. As far as the known world could tell, Ahasuerus was the man. He had the largest empire that anybody had known up until that point in history. He was rich beyond anyone's wildest dreams. He loved to display his wealth and power for all to see. He, at least humanly speaking, seemed to have the right to say what was found on an inscription that says, I am Xerxes, the great king, king of kings, king of countries, containing many kinds of men, king in this great earth, far and wide, son of King Darius. A little proud, wouldn't you say? The, the inscription goes on to list all of the nations conquered and all that were under the rule of Ahasuerush. He is indisputably at this point in history, the greatest man, at least from just a purely human perspective on the face of the earth. He is the most powerful, he is the ruler. But here's something that we're gonna see in the book of Esther. His failures were massive and at points almost comical. More importantly, what Esther is going to emphasize to us is God's sovereign rule never ever takes a back seat to any king, any president, any prime minister, any ruler. God's providence is never thwarted by them. It is never overruled by them. In fact, God's providence overrules the supposed greatness of men. Even our own government is filled with men and women who revel in the sense of their own power, who believe they deserve authority and that their authority is responsible for whatever good happens under their rule. So when the economy is good, or when the nation's at peace, or when people are generally optimistic about the land or the future, then what do the political rulers say? Look what I've done. I have been wonderful and my policies have worked and I am responsible for all this. And when things go wrong, well, that was my predecessor or that's the other party somehow that has messed up all of the good things that I would be doing. Or if there's some disaster or crisis, then that's just something that I will have to solve for you. That, that friends, that's, that's not a political statement. That's a reality for both parties, not just for the United States. It is for leaders worldwide that, that there is this draw to ego and power that says, I I claim this, I've done this. Very few that, that bow the knee to Jesus Christ and will humbly confess that. But the reality is, you and I struggle in this area. When, when, when we have our plans and we have our goals and we really intend to fulfill those, 
to, to follow the, the sequence we have in mind. It should go the way that we want it to go. We, we understand providence exists and, and it's a cool doctrine and it's something that theologians should study and write about. But when it comes to my plans, those are kind of sacred too. And when there's problems, those are just obstacles to my plans. And when there's suffering, it's hard to find anything good in that, in terms of purpose. What so often escapes us is the truth that we're going to see in Esther that the Bible declares from beginning to end, and that is our good and sovereign God is working out his will through all of our circumstances, through the plans that seem to go well and the ones that seem to fail miserably, through the sickness and the health, in all of that, God is still at work bringing glory to himself. If we genuinely embrace God's providence, it will make us more humble, more grateful, more dependent, more inclined to glorify the Lord in both successes and failures because we will come to understand that the successes are the kindness of his hand and the failures he is still at work to bring glory to himself and to accomplish his good for us. Ahasuerus believed in a Persian God, not the creator God. No surprise then that he is boastful about his authority. And at this particular moment, he is demanding that Vashti fulfill the definition of being his trophy wife. Come here. In fact, he doesn't even talk to her. Sends his servants, bring her here, and I'm going to show her off as just another display of the greatness of my kingdom, of what belongs to me. Verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. The king became furious and his anger burned within him. The, the previous six months have been this well-orchestrated performance, all geared at showing everyone, I am the man. I am in charge. What I say goes. Everybody will follow me, and it'll be successful. And in one foolish, drunken moment, it all fell apart on Ahasuerus. He overreached, made a foolish and sinful demand, and tried to turn his wife into a, a sort of show-and-tell object that would display his own glory for his benefit, and she wouldn't play along. So the king, it says, turns to his seven highest officials, the ranking advisors, the only ones who can just walk into his presence without being announced, the seven closest advisors. Verse 15, the king asked, according to the law, what should be done with Queen Vashti since she refused to obey King Ahasuerus' command that was delivered by the eunuchs? Don't you love the third person? Queen did not obey King Ahasuerus just because he has to remind everybody of who he is at that moment in case they had forgotten. And the seven geniuses that the king relied on for his advice all come together and they are in a panic because they're looking at long-term implications of what Queen Vashti has done and there's, there's, there's possible fallout and they are just as foolish and self-absorbed as he and their greatest worry is that news of the queen rejecting the king's order is going to cause wives all over the empire to despise their own husbands and show them contempt. And so there's, there's not a lot of wisdom going on here. There's a lot of self-protection at the moment. And so verse 19, they said this, if it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree. Let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it cannot be revoked. 
Vashti is not to enter King Ahasuerus' presence, and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout this vast kingdom, so all women will honor their husbands from the greatest to the least. Chapter 1 goes on to say the king approves of this proposal, agrees to banish and replace Vashti. And verse 22, that finishes it off, it speaks of, in, in this decree, of every man being master of his own house and speaking the language of his people. That's probably a reference to something that we saw in the quote from Xerxes before, and I, I'm over many different men, different nations, so there were all kinds of languages spoke. What he's ultimately, I, I think, adding there in verse 22 is one of the displays that he is the man of the house is his language is to be spoken, presumably speaking to Persian men who have married foreign wives, that, that you are to have our language spoken in your house. Before we consider anything else, it, it's worth pausing at this moment to understand what a massive moment this is in terms of turning points in the book of Esther. It, it will all hinge on this, this foolish moment in which Hazuerish has not only done something foolish, but now has listened to his counselors and made it even worse has now banished his queen and, and, and committed now to replacing her. God is at work in all of this. This is an incredible turning point in the story, and yet God is at work. So the first theme was God's providence overrules man's greatness. The second one is God's providence achieves his purposes even through man's foolishness. Talked about man's greatness, but now we're seeing man's foolishness. It's almost stunning when you think about it that the king at the moment of her rejection does not say, uh, excuse me, let me go and consult with Queen Vashti and let's see if we can work this out. At least have a conversation, at least a little give and take on the whole conversation, but instead turns to his advisors and then willingly submits to whatever they say and, and essentially turns his whole world upside down in that moment. He's already declared her to be one of the most beautiful women in the world. There, there's no evidence that she is an incompetent queen. In fact, the opposite seems to be. She seems to fulfill her royal duties well. And, and yet, here is Ahasuerus saying, that's it. The advisors have spoken. We're done. I will never see her face again speaks of it as the law of the Medes and the Persians. It's not actually clear that Persian law was always considered irrevocable, but the, the, the phrase, the law of the Medes and the Persians, still gets used occasionally, and it, it, it's come to mean that idea of something set in stone, something that is unalterable in any way. And it goes back to this account and to Xerxes' father, to Darius. If you remember the story of Darius in the book of Daniel, Darius has a number of advisors. One of them is a Jew by the name of Daniel, in whom Darius puts great trust comes to find that Daniel is an incredible leader and begins to entrust his kingdom to him and to, wants to make him number two in charge of the whole kingdom. And then you have these other leaders who are jealous of Daniel. And so what do they do? They come to King Darius and say, how about if you make a decree, a 30-day decree that says you cannot ask of, plead to any man or any God except for you, King Darius. If they don't come to you, then they get thrown in the lion's den. And Darius, you got to make this law irrevocable. Nobody can change it, can't alter this law. And Darius goes for it. They all know. Daniel is a man who stands before an open window and who looks toward the direction of Jerusalem and who prays to Yahweh. And he does that again, and Darius is forced to face his law that he cannot change and say to Daniel, 
I pray that your God will rescue you from even the lion's den. We know that story. Well, now here is his son stumbling into the same rash, foolish sort of behavior. The very thing that the queen refused to do, enter into his presence, he now makes the punishment for her. She may not enter into his presence anymore. In all of this royal foolishness, the hand of God is actively at work to raise a then unknown young Jewish girl to ultimately become the queen of Persia. It's remarkable what God is navigating in all of this and causing to happen because this, this new queen will then act to save the Jewish people from an attempt at genocide. It's all God's sweet design. At the moment, what it looks like, if we're, if we're tracking this in the fifth century BC on social media, stupid Xerxes is probably a hashtag at this point. How could he do this? Oh man, this guy can't even, can't even apparently manage his own home. And now he's, he's telling us that he manages the kingdom. And this just looks like laughably stupid actions of a politician who is drunk and drunk on power. His advisors are all acting on the basis of sinful, selfish desires to the point, verse 22 says, the king's new Vashti law, if you will, was meant to show that every man should be master of his own house. How ironic that the very thing that, that, that Ahasuerus could not do is the thing that's now proclaimed as the basis for this new law. I love the description. Commentator Karen Jobes, he writes this. The author of Esther is revealing the workings of worldly power and mocking its ultimate inability to determine the destiny of God's people. At that time and place, worldly power was held by Persian men. The author chooses to include and highlight an incident involving the interaction between men and women because in this story, powerful Persian men are outwitted by a Jewish woman. Esther has to overcome two levels of conflict, both as a woman and as a Jew, to come into her own as queen of Persia. We modern readers probably cannot fully appreciate how truly remarkable a feat that was. It is because it is God who is sovereignly at work, who is orchestrating all of these circumstances for his own glory and for the protection of his people. But I would suggest this. When we are tempted to think that our foolishness, our sin, our stupid decisions, our things that we can't go and take back, wish we could have a redo on, but we can't, and we now feel like it's done. I've blown it, I've lost it, I've made the greatest mistake in my life. Nothing good can possibly come of this. Well, Esther is here to remind us, that the Bible tells us a litany of stories of flawed people. Moses, Abraham, David, Peter, all individuals who we see at some of their worst moments. And yet Esther tells us again and again, God was at work, even through their foolishness, even through their stupid decisions, even through their sin. It did not cause God to say, oh, now what do I do? Now, that doesn't by any means encourage us toward foolishness. This is just like Romans 6.1 where it says, you know, that I'll sin all the more so that grace may abound all the more. So I'll be foolish all the more so I can see God's providence all the more. No, that's not the case. Because the, the, the reminder here is that 
even when, when we can do things that seem laughably foolish, there is still a Lord who rules. And for his people, he is working all things together for good. And in all things, he is working for his glory. God's providence overrules man's greatness. It achieves his purposes even through man's foolishness. And then third, God's providence enables us to trust his promises more fully. The book of Esther, as we'll come to see, is ultimately a story about God rescuing his people from the threat of genocide. In chapter 3, we're going to see an evil official who has the ear of Ahasuerus who says, you need to issue a decree to annihilate Jews everywhere in the empire. That should help us think back for a moment. Remember Genesis 3.15, we talked about it back in December. Adam and Eve had sinned. God renders judgment upon them and upon Satan who tempted them as a snake. And God said, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. As we said back in that Advent series, the offspring of the woman is the the king, is the true king, is Jesus Christ who is coming as savior who will bring the defeating blow upon Satan who will hit him in the head in such a way that will defeat him once and for all. But what the promise of Genesis 3.15 also says is there will be strikes at the heel. It will be painful, be violent. Satan will continue to do everything he can to try to thwart the seed of the woman. And so Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and we could move it on up into the, the modern age, all of these attempts to snuff out, as, as we're going to see in Esther, to snuff out a people, a race of people, the Jewish people. It's all Satan for, trying desperately to thwart the will of God that would bring about the glorious Savior who is Jesus Christ. And so as we're reading this, we are reminded that God promised in Genesis 3.15, those strikes will be real and they'll hurt, but no, the, the seed of the woman is still coming and he will be victorious. God saves his people through remarkable twists in this story of providence. And even when he is not seen, no one's attributing it to his glory, that he's not spoken of in the midst of the story, his providence is at work so that God could work in such a way as to replace the queen of the greatest king of the world at that point in time, could take her out and put in her place a young Jewish girl that he will use for his purposes. Esther shows us that one of the reasons, and there are many, but one of the reasons we can trust God's promises is because we know the truth of his providence. We know that what he says he will do is not just a hopeful wish, but he will actually do what he says. He will carry out and execute his will. So when we come to the end of Romans 8, how do we know nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? How do we know that all things work together for good for them who are trusting him? How do we know that we are more than conquerors when we face the very ruthless hatred of Satan and his evil forces? How do we know? Because God has said it and he is doing it. Because God has, has said that because of me, because of my son, Jesus Christ, you are more than conquerors. He is doing what he promises. And, and so through our circumstances and our lives, as demonstrated by the book of Esther, God is giving us the assurance from his providence of the promises that he has given us, that he will keep them. One last theme, and it's this, God's providence works in our lives much like it did in Esther's life. Now you may at first think, I'm not royalty, 
Don't think I'm gonna become royalty anytime soon. Not sure I see the connection to Esther. So let me give you a quote just to start with a man named Brian Gregory. He says this, the vast majority of people today will see their own experience in Esther much more than in many other books of the Bible. What he means by this is most of us have not experienced and probably will not experience uh, parting of the Red Sea, the collapse of the walls at Jericho, healings that Jesus did. We won't visibly watch Jesus take some loaves and fish and feed 5,000 people. We don't, on this side of eternity, get to see the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. For the most part, God's actions are hidden from our sight. We don't typically see, not always, but we don't typically see obvious miracles or unmistakably clear divine interventions. What we typically see is our ordinary lives and the lives of those people around us. Day by day, doing ordinary things as life unfolds. We come to church, we go to work, we care for families, we go through struggles, we experience ups and downs. And not in all of it do we actually see something that we could quickly point to and say, there is the supernatural. You see it right at this moment. I, I, I thought of this, as, again, it just refreshed me as I was listening to, to Chris and Susie's testimony of just, walking through circumstances of life, of sickness and hardship and challenges. And what is God doing in all of that? He is, he is saving them. He is working them, working more and more toward that place where he will draw them into his kingdom and save them. Jesus Christ today is actively upholding the universe by his power. He is, at this moment, the reason that you and I are taking in a breath because of the providence and care of Jesus Christ. The, the so-called natural activities that the weather person describes as being that from mother nature or whatever they attribute it to are the works of God. The fact that it was 70 degrees on Friday and not so nice today is God's will for where we are right now in our weather. That's his goodness. The events that happen to us and around us are the revealing of his will, even the ones that seem coincidental. Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The Bible says God makes nations great and he destroys them. God raises leaders and he brings them down. With confidence, Paul could say, in Philippians chapter four, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. How can we say that? How can we know? Because this is what God does, because over and over again, the Bible affirms that through the ordinary circumstances of life, God is at work in and through his creation, in and through his people, in and through the world around us. That doesn't, that doesn't make us machines. Your, your takeaway from this, I hope, is not, well, then God's, God just does it all and I'm just a pawn in this whole thing. That was not the case with Esther. Esther still has to step forward toward a plan that actually seems rather ridiculous up front when, when it's suggested that she enter the, the beauty pageant, if you will, to become queen. I mean, what are the chances of that? Esther still then, when she becomes queen, is the one that has to step into the presence of the king to, to, to take the step boldly that will lead to the ending or at least the prevention of the genocide. Esther still has to act in those situations, but at every move, it is the purpose of God that is happening and will stand. 
and we can and must rest in that. Whatever you're going through today, if you're dealing with some hardship, with some suffering, or if things are great, praise God that it is the outworking of his good plan in your life, that his providence is at work. And if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, then he is bringing what he knows to be good for you. If you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, then we pray that his providence is drawing you to see Jesus Christ as the glorious King of Kings and as the one to whom you should surrender your life. That's the beauty of the providence of God in the story of Esther. In a world that's not much different from hers, where miracles and supernatural interventions are more the exception than the rule, our king is still exercising the same good and sovereign rule through his providence right at this very moment. And we can give him thanks for that. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you. We do love you. We do worship you that you have made this creation in such a way that we as human beings are able to respond are able to follow desires, are able to, even by the working of your spirit and believers, able to obey, that we, we truly are creatures that you have set your affection on and you have given wills to us and desires that, that work in our hearts. And so we are not machines by any stretch. And yet, you have so clearly established Boundaries that are set by your providence. That it is you who is in control and you who is working all things after the counsel of your will. And so I, I just want to join in prayer for myself and my brothers and sisters this morning that we would be a people who would love your providence. That we would be so grateful and thankful that in the most trying of circumstances, we are not left to wonder if you are still active in it if you can still bring something out of it for your glory and our good, that that is, that is what you do. And so we thank you for that. And I pray this morning for anybody here or watching online that, that has not come to know Jesus Christ alone as the glorious King and Savior, as the one who is truly over all of this universe. Lord, would today be the day that you'd open their eyes to see him, to see that Jesus Christ on the cross did what we could never do. The law that we have broken again and again, he lived out perfectly. And so in his death on the cross, he paid a price for sinners who will trust in him that has been proven to be the complete price by his resurrection. As we've celebrated this morning, those who will trust in you experience joining in your death and in your resurrection to new life. And so we thank you for the hope in Christ we thank you that history is moving toward your achieved, desired, planned end. That one day your people will be gathered, not for a six-month feast, but for all of eternity, to fellowship intimately with the God of the universe. Thank you for that, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.